Well, let's continue in our series, Dare to be Different. We are taking a deep dive into Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How's that going, by the way, Harvest? Are you committed to that? Are you praying through that? Are you asking God to do that in 2021? If there's anything that I've learned after, I don't know, 35 years of following Jesus is that I need to be changed constantly. And I praise God that he's done that work. He continues to do that work. We need to be changed by the renewing of our mind. And we've already looked at two topics in our series, ways that we need to be different from the world. I dare you to be different from the world, Harvest Decatur. I dared you to be different two weeks ago in the area of kingdom-mindedness, to be about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Last week, I dared you to be truthful, live not by lies. Now today... I dare you, Harvest Decatur, to be loving, to be loving. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of love and truth, wasn't he now? So I dare you to be truthful like Jesus. You know what else? I dare you to be loving like Jesus. That's what we're going for today. And whenever you you tackle the topic of love, you just got to deal with what you might call counterfeit loves or false loves that circulate in our world And so I need to take a little bit of time right now to deprogram us all from from the love as we understand it. We need a pretty significant paradigm shift to move from what the world thinks about love to what the Bible teaches about love. This we've got to overhaul, I think, our entire thinking in this world to get to a place of love as God intends love. Okay, Pat Benatar was right in 1983. Love is a battlefield. This is the battlefield of love for us. We need to get from the world's definition to our own definition. Aristotle said many years ago, I want to use his illustration. Aristotle talked famously about the fish. And he said that the last person you want to ask about being wet is a fish. Why is that? Because a a fish has never been dry. All he knows is wet. He can't get undry. And I'm going to steal Aristotle's illustration for our purposes this morning, okay? We are like that fish in our world today. We have been swimming in a sea of false love for years. Lust-driven love and self-serving love and emotionally charged, volatile kinds of love. These are really closer, the world's definition of love is really closer to infatuation than love as God describes it in his word. This is the sea of false love that we are swimming in today. So today, Harvest Decatur, we need to renew our minds. We need to renew our minds by the power of God's word. You might say, well, how do we do that, Pastor? How do we do that? I want that. I want to know what, to, I want to know what love really is as God defines it, as the scriptures speak of it. How do we get unwet, Pastor Tony? How how do we dislodge ourselves from the false loves that overwhelm us and learn to love like God loves? Well, we need transformation. We need metamorphosis. The only way that we can do that is being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Here's my challenge to you, Harvest Decatur, okay? I challenge you as the church of Jesus Christ to love as God intended it. Love your families like God intended it. What does it really mean to love your spouse 
like God wants us to love our spouse? What does it mean to love your children? I mean, I mean, really love your children. What does that mean? How do we do that? What does it mean to love the Lord? What does it mean to love your neighbor? What does it mean to love your coworkers? What does it mean to love your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church with real love, not superficial and capricious kinds of love, but real love, real love. That's our mission today. Everybody with me? Y'all awake now? That's my introduction. So let's get after this, okay? I'll give you today three ways to live a loving Christian life in this world, Harvest Decatur. Write these down. Three ways to live a loving Christian life in this world. I could probably give you 300 ways from the Bible, but we don't have time for 300 ways, okay? We got time for three. Three ways. Here's the first. Harvest Decatur, I challenge you to be a 1 Corinthians 13 Christian. Be a 1 Corinthians 13 Christian. When I was 15 years old, I decided to memorize 1 Corinthians 13. And it was, it was a momentous moment in my life as a young man because it was the first time that I had done in, any kind of memory work where I wasn't rewarded for it. You know, it wasn't like my church had this program. It wasn't like I was at Awana's. They told me to memorize. It wasn't like I was going to get rewarded by my family or by my, I just, I just did it. And I, I remember there was this tension in my heart at 15. Like, I don't know love. I knew that I had been inundated by the world of movies and music and media. And, and I knew whatever the world was selling me as it relates to love wasn't right. It wasn't working. It wasn't good. And, and it, quite honestly, it terrified me because I had inside of me at 15, I had this, this growing attraction for, for the opposite sex. And I had this desire to experience love and share love and give another person love. And, and I didn't know how to do it. And, and I knew I had enough. I didn't have a lot of sense at 15. Okay. But I had enough sense to know that whatever the world was telling me about love, that, that didn't work. It's not right. I knew that Hollywood's perspective on love was askew. I knew that my friend's perspective on love wasn't right. I knew that what the world was telling me wasn't, wasn't going to work. Let me say it this way. Let me go back to Aristotle's illustration. I knew I was a fish swimming in a sea of false love, and I knew I had to get out of that and to see what the Bible really teaches about love and what God really wants in terms of love. So I memorized this chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. In my, I remember the Bible even. It was an NIV student Bible. And here's what Paul says about love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, ooh, ah, that's amazing. Look at what I can do. Look at all the knowledge I have. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, ooh, oh, wow, that's amazing. This great 
act of self-sacrifice. But if not love, I gain nothing, says Paul. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love builds up. And Paul says here, you can have faith that can move mountains, but so what? If you don't have love, it's, it's meaningless. It doesn't merit you anything. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Before I get into the specifics of First Corinthians 13 and what it teaches about love, I want to give you a few perspectives on uh, misperspectives on love. I want to debunk some false understandings about love. So three counterfeit loves. These are in your notes. You can write these down. Here's the first counterfeit love. Love is not harvest decator. We need to just say this in our world because it's so misunderstood. Love is not feelings-driven emotion. It's not limited to that. It's not reduced to that. Love is not feelings-driven emotion. The New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg, he says this. He says, the need for genuine Christ-like love remains as great today as ever. Yeah, one of our greatest problems is defining love. Popular culture and literature, music, advertising, the visual arts uses the word love to mean just about everything except what the Bible means by it. I found that to be true. So even Christians are easily misled into thinking that love is primarily a feeling, something you fall in or out of. We equate it with lust or sexual intercourse itself, speaking of one's lover or of making love. But in 1 Corinthians 13, as throughout Scripture, love is first of all an action, an unconditional commitment, a promise that is never broken. If I went out to the streets of Decatur this afternoon and asked people, asked 100 people to define love, I bet you I would get, for most people, some kind of description, some kind of variation of feelings-driven emotion. And, and they'll say something like this. I've heard it. You know, love is, love is something that you can't will or determine. It just kind of hits you like a bolt of lightning. Ooh, wow. And you can't stop it. You know, you just have these feelings. You can't change it. You can't move it. You, can't, you just got to go with it, whatever happens. It's like that B.J. Thomas song from way back in the 60s. I'm hooked on a feeling. You get hooked on a feeling and just, it's uncontrollable. You just got to go with it. You can't stop it. You can't change it. And if you watch movies in our world or you listen to songs on the radio, that's the impression that they give you, that love is just this unstoppable feeling. It just takes over you and, and that's it. The problem with that is that is not what the Bible teaches about love. And it's not love. What that is is enslavement to your own emotions. Unfortunately, all the songs that we export from our country to other places around the world describe this kind of love, promote this kind of enslavement. You just you get hit with love and you can't stop it. You just got to go with it. And most of the movies in Hollywood, too, promote this kind of love, love as feelings-driven emotion. You know, I was in uh, 
Malaysia a few years ago. Mike Vernon and I went to Malaysia on a missions trip, and we did this conference for men. We did a men's conference. There were about 60, 70 men. I don't remember Mike. It was probably about that many. And I had the privilege of teaching on love at a men's conference, okay? It's a bunch of tough guys. And, you know, and what was amazing about this church, this was Harvest KL, and they had people from all over the world. They had Australians. They had Malaysians. They had Africans. They had people from the United Kingdom. They had people from Canada, the people from the United States, people from all over the world. And I remember in that conference, apologizing to these people from all over the world that were gathered for this men's conference. I, I told them, I said, I am sorry that my country exported Britney Spears to the rest of the world. I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for Maroon 5. I'm sorry for Adam Levine. I'm sorry for Beyonce. I'm sorry for Justin Bieber. I'm sorry for Madonna. And then somebody told me at that conference, Justin Bieber's from Canada. He's not from America. And I said, phew, all right, well, good. I guess we're not responsible for all of it. I told him, I'm sorry for Hollywood. I'm sorry that my country has influenced the rest of the world in such a horrible way about the nature of love, understanding it and reducing it to feelings-driven emotion. Because when I read Romans, when I read, Romans, we still in Romans? 1 Corinthians 13. When I read this great chapter of love in the Bible, there is very little in here about feelings-driven emotion. Paul writes, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or it's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. I wish we sang songs like that. Some people do. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Sometimes love has to endure when our feelings are prodding us in the wrong direction, right? Sometimes, let me say that again. Y'all listening? Everybody with me? Sometimes love has to endure even when our feelings are prodding us in the wrong direction, right? You might say, I love my wife, Pastor Tony. I love her. Okay, well, can you love her even when you don't feel like loving her? Can you love her when she's unlovely? Can you love her when, the, when your, your commitments to her after 40 or 50 years of in sickness and in health till death do us part? Until, can you love her through the challenge of that and stay faithful to her? You might say, Pastor Tony, I love my children. I really do. I love my children. All right, well, can you love them when they're unlovable? My children are never unlovable, Pastor Tony. Well, just, just, just wait. Just wait. You'll get there. Can you love them through the hardness of their growing up years and when you feel like leaving them or abandoning them or lashing out at them, can you love them through that? That is where real love is found. Love has to be an act of the will, not just whimsical emotionalism. Love has to be an act of the will, not just whimsical emotionalism. Let me clarify here. We talked about this in my uh, small group a little bit this last Thursday, and it's imperative that I say this. Emotions aren't bad, okay? I just need to say it. Emotions are not bad. Emotions are a gift that God has given us. They're from the Lord. If I can be honest with you right now, this might surprise some of you. I'm a more emotional person than you might have guessed. 
I, I used to be an emotionally stable person, and then I became a pastor, and it just, it just ended. Emotions are not a bad thing. They're a gift from the Lord. But here's the thing, and we talked about this in small group. I think Ryan Jackson said this. Feelings are a great caboose, but they make a lousy locomotive. Right? Y'all have heard that before, haven't you? Feelings are a great caboose, and the, but they make a lousy locomotive. You can't let emotions drive your train. If you do, that'll be a train wreck. You've got to drive with your will. If you, if you are driven by your emotions, if you only love the people that God has put in your life, when you feel like loving them, that is a recipe for dysfunction. There will be times in your life when you've got to say, I don't, I don't feel like loving these people. I don't, I, don't, I don't even like them right now. I don't even like the people in my family right now. But doggone it, I am going to love them through this. Emotions, get to the caboose. I'm making a decision right now. Get in line with what I'm deciding to do in terms of my love for this person. Love needs to be an act of your will. Here's another counterfeit love. Love is not feelings-driven emotion. It's not self-indulgent lust either. Is this okay defining what love is not? It helps me to know what love is not, what something is not before I tell you what it is. So stay with me here. These counterfeit loves are important to get us away from this before we get on the right track. So love is not self-indulgent lust. The, the characteristic example of this in the Bible is David's son, Amnon, who was inflamed with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. And because of his so-called love for her, he forced himself on her, 2 Samuel 13 it says that he loved her, but after he had violated her, it says he hated her with a very great hatred. He never loved her. All he cared about was himself. All he cared about was satisfying his self-indulgent and self-gratifying lust. So back to 1 Corinthians 13 for a second. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Look, that evil that was perpetrated in the Bible with Amnon against Tamar, that's perpetrated in our day all the time. We see that. It's a, it's a criminal act that's severely punished in our court system, as it should be. But I'll just tell you, there are other ways, less heinous, non-criminal ways, but just as selfish that we demonstrate this kind of love all the time. Self-indulgent love, lust. Love them and leave them. You know, just use them for whatever we want and then move on to the next person. We write songs about it. All my exes live in Texas. That's why I hang my hat in Tennessee. We write songs about this kind of stuff. And it's not limited to the marital relationship. I read a biography on Winston Churchill a few years back. And in that biography, it was said of Winston Churchill's mother that she didn't think very much of her son when he was a young kid, when he was kind of a rambunctious, obnoxious kid. She didn't like him. She didn't want to spend time with him. She got away from him as much as, he, as she could. But then he became an adult, and he was Winston Churchill. He had this boundless intellect and, intellect and this charismatic personality. And now all of a sudden, because he was good for her, she, you know, he was a means to an end for her. She, she loved him. She wanted to spend time with him. 
he, he was allowing her to advance her own social and political ambition. Do you love your children that way, Harvest Decatur? Can I, is that what they are to you, a means to an end? Do you love your children because of what they do for you? How they, how they make you feel about yourself? Do you love them because of what they do for you before the world? Look at my kids. They make me look good. Can I just tell you, that is closer to idolatry than it is to love. That is not the way God has called us to love. And how much love in our world is basically just narcissistic, self-loving, self-indulgence. That's not how it should be. Here's a third counterfeit love. Love is not truthful tolerance either. Love is not truthless tolerance. Have I mentioned before that Truth and love are friends, and they like to hang out. Have I said that before? Have I told you before, don't make a false dichotomy between love and truth? I think I probably have beat that horse significantly dead for you last week and otherwise. But just as a reminder, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You know, when the United States legalized gay marriage in 2015, there were, there were many people, even professing Christians, who were saying, you know, love wins, love wins. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with that? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 13, love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't celebrate sin. Instead, it rejoices in God's truth. Love is truthless. Tolerance is counterfeit. Love. And, I, and let me just say this about tolerance, too. I'm not... Tolerance isn't all bad. Don't misunderstand me. There are actually some good aspects to tolerance. To be intolerant of a person because of their age, because of their gender, because of their ethnicity, because of their socioeconomic status, that's wrong. America is this great, this great bastion of diversity, this great defender of diversity and commonality. I love that about our country. We are a melting pot. That is fantastic. And we need brotherly love and tolerance for one another. But when tolerance becomes the ultimate virtue that trumps even God's truth, that's when tolerance is a problem. That's when tolerance becomes unsustainable. Because when tolerance is the ultimate virtue and the search for truth is irrelevant, that leads to not real love. Truthless tolerance is not real love. It compromises love. And that's true in, in several realms. To truthlessly tolerate your children is to hate them and to cripple them for life. To truthlessly tolerate criminals in our world is to enable crime in our country. Love has a backbone. Love cannot be divorced from the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. So enough about what biblical love isn't. Let's talk about what it is. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Paul says, love, love is patient. Love is patient. You know that guy at your workplace that keeps hassling you for your Christian faith? Keeps rubbing your face and all the failures of Christianity in our world right now? Love is patient with that guy. Love is patient with those people on social media that keep using the same inflammatory statements to cause division. Love is patient with them. Love is patient with your husband when he forgets something for the umpteenth time. 
Well done. <laughs> love is patient. Love is also kind, right? Love is kind. It doesn't return evil for evil. When your wife loses her temper with you, don't amen this, ladies. When your wife loses her temper with you, love doesn't fire right back and escalate the conflict. When your parents make you crazy, love is kind towards them. Love doesn't play passive-aggressive games of animosity. Love forgives. Love, can I say this? Love gives people the benefit of the doubt. When did we stop doing that in our country? Assume the best of people, not the worst. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant. That's humble. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not selfish. Love is not narcissistic. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love is not irritable or resentful. Pastor Tony, you know, that guy gets on my last nerve. Well, get some new nerves, okay? Get a new last nerve. Love is not irritable or resentful. You know, when I preached this, when I preached 1 Corinthians 13 several years ago, I told you that Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of love demonstrated in this chapter, right? I mean, you read this chapter, it's like Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Paul's basically saying you need to be more like Jesus. And I even told you that you could even replace Jesus in here, especially in verses four through seven, everywhere, every place where you see love, just put Jesus. And if that helps you make sense of this chapter, then, then do that. I'll do it for you. Jesus is patient and kind, isn't he now? Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all thing, things. Jesus endures all things. Do y'all feel the power of that? And by the way, when I say that, you know, I'm not telling that, us that so that we just admire. Yeah, admiration of Jesus. Absolutely. Let's admire him. But let's also imitate him. You know, Paul wrote this down, not just to show us this great thing, Jesus, the perfect embodiment of love, but he wants you to be like this too. He wants you to be Christ-like in this way. So what that means is that your name should be able to go in here too. You should be able to say, Maybe not perfectly like Jesus, but increasingly as you grow as a Christian, love is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Isn't it? This is the first fruit of the Spirit. You should be able to say, Tony is patient and kind. Whew. Need to work on that. Tony does not envy or boast. Sonia is not arrogant or rude. Sonia does not insist on her own way. Catherine is not irritable or resentful. Paul does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We bear all things. We believe all things. We hope all things. We endure all things. As a church 
here's what I'm going for. Here's, here's what I'm calling you to. I dare you to do this, Harvest Decatur. Harvest Decatur is patient and kind. Does the world know us as that? Does the world know our church as that? Harvest Decatur does not envy or boast. Harvest Decatur is not arrogant or rude. Harvest Decatur does not insist on its own way. Harvest Decatur is not irritable or resentful. Harvest Decatur does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Harvest Decatur, we bear all things, we believe all things, we hope all things, we endure all things. Is that true of us? Is that true of you? I'll, I'll just tell you right now, I got some stuff I need to work on. I do. And Paul writes this because we need to aspire to this as followers of Jesus Christ and be like him. Am I patient like Jesus? Just ask yourself that question right now. Am I patient like Jesus? Am, am I kind like Jesus? Do I endure hardships like Jesus? Do I rejoice in the truth like Jesus? I, I know it, it almost feels blasphemous to say these things, you know? I'm not asking you to be perfect. I don't think Paul's asking you to be perfect here. But, but we need to be perfectible. We need to be growing in these things. Are we increasing in these things? Are we growing in these things? Are we more loving today, biblically loving, than we were 10 years ago, five years ago, five months ago? You know, 2020 was a tough year. I've said that several times from this pulpit. Did you grow in your love for other people in 2020? Or did you waste a lot of time whining about how things aren't the way that you want them to be? I'm preaching myself right now. Did the obstacles that we went through last year and has 2021 really been that different? Are they forcing you to grow in patience, in kindness, in love for one another? I said a few weeks ago, let me say this again, I wanna be, I wanna be different at the end of 2021 than I am right now. I wanna be more loving at the end of this year than I am right now. God help us, God help us all to get there. I wanna be more like Jesus every day. Write this down as number two in your notes. Here's a second way to live a loving Christian life in this world. First of all, be a 1 Corinthians 13 Christian, but also do this, be a self-sacrificing Christian. Not self-serving, but self-sacrificing. Some of you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, that's good. All right, all right. Well, give me a definition for love. You spent a lot of time telling us what love is not. What is love? What's the definition? How do you sum up what the Bible says about love? Okay, here's my definition. You can read this on the screen. Love is the joyful and willing sacrifice of self in imitation of Christ for the benefit of others and the glory of God. You might be able to come up with a better definition. Be my guest, but that's what I came up with. Love is the joyful and willing sacrifice of self in imitation of Christ for the benefit of others and the glory of God. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Be like Christ. Give of yourself in the way that Christ gave himself for us. 1 John 3, 16 says this, This is how we know what love is. How do we know what love is? What is love, Pastor Tony? This is how we know what love is, John says. Jesus Christ laid down his love for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's why Paul, when he talks to men, he says, die to yourself like Christ died for you. That's how you be a good husband in your household. 
By the way, the greatest ideals about love are found in the Bible. Y'all know that, don't you? They're not found in other religious texts. They're not found in the Quran. The, the greatest demonstration of love, all the greatest demonstrations are found in God's word. He created love. God is love, the Bible says. So of course that would be true. He's the, imperf he's the perfect embodiment of love. So if you go to the passages that I'm quoting today, including 1 Corinthians 13, and weigh your love for others against that standard, against that plumb line, you'll be on your way to loving as God wants you to. How does God show us how to love? How does he speak of love in his scriptures? Here's another definition of love from John Piper. He says this, love is the overflow and expansion of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. Love is the overflow and expansion of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. Love is not self-serving. It's not emotionally driven and volatile. It's not emotionless. It's driven by our will and our desire to follow Christ. And it's followed by our affections and feelings as best we can gather them for that purpose. Here's another way to say it. Maybe you've heard this before. Biblical love is you before me, love. Y'all heard that before? You before me, love. Because oftentimes when people say, I love you, to another person, what are they saying? What, what you're doing for me right now, that, that makes me feel good. What you're doing for me right now is, is working for me. You know, we, we, isn't that sneaky how we twist that around in our minds? But biblical love is self-sacrificial. That's, that's what Jesus modeled for us in the New Testament. Let me go back to Hollywood for a second. Can I rant about Hollywood for a little bit longer? Brace yourselves. You know, whenever Hollywood celebrities talk about experiencing great love or being great lovers, you might as well just laugh out loud. They don't have a clue about love. They don't have a clue. Whenever their spouse or their significant other does something, that they just punt them. They just get rid of them and go on to another person. That is not love. And what's sad is that, and ironic too, these are the same people who are making romantic comedies that try to portray human love before the world. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue what they're doing. And where are those movies you rarely see one about a man or a woman who has learned to love a spouse for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. That's love. Helping somebody walk through disease, helping somebody walk through cancer, helping somebody walk through the loss of a child and standing by one another through thick and thin, through hell or high water. That is love. Hollywood doesn't understand that. And if you know someone like that, let me just give some advice to the young people in this room right now. If you know somebody like that in the church, get to know that person. If your parents are those kinds of people, tell them that today. Thank you for being faithful to one another for 20, 30, 40 years. Thank you for showing me something different than what the world has shown me. Something good. Love is the joyful and willful sacrifice of self in imitation of Christ for the benefit of others and the glory of God. 
It's self-sacrificial. And I'm not saying that I've mastered that. I got a lot of ways to grow in this. But I aspire to that, Harvest Decatur. Finally, write this down as number three in your notes. Here's a final way to live a loving Christian life in this world. Be a 1 Corinthians 13 Christian. Be a self-sacrificing Christian. Be a forgiving Christian. Back to 1 Corinthians 13 for a second. In verse 5, Paul writes, love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. The NIV translation says it this way. Love keeps no record of wrongs. How y'all doing with that? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Do you keep the records of the wrongs that your parents did to you? That your kids are doing to you? That your spouse did? 1995, you did it back then, you did it again. You just keep doing it over and over again. Love keeps no records of wrongs. Love is forgiving. I, I mentioned in the video update this last week that I, I read this book. I encourage you to read it with me. It's called The Madness of Crowds. And if you do read that book, let me just warn you, it, it is not bedtime reading with your kids, okay? It's not for the faint of heart. It's equal parts fascinating and terrifying what's in that book. And one of the things that Douglas Murray points out in that book is that in the, the modern-day world of identity politics and cancel culture, there's no place for forgiveness. It's all vindictiveness. There's, there's no forgiveness. And he makes a fascinating observation. He says, and he's speaking, he's a British author, so he's speaking about the West, American culture, British culture, both. He said, the farther that we drift from our Christian convictions as a culture, the farther we drift from the habits of forgiveness. And he's not even a believer. He's not even a Christian. And he acknowledges that. The farther we get away from our Christian ethos, and our Christian conviction, the farther away we get from forgiveness. And, and, you know, that totally makes sense because what is the central event in Christian theology? What is the central truth in Christianity? It's that Jesus Christ self-sacrificially died on a cross for our sins so that we might have forgiveness. What do you replace that with when you get rid of Christianity? We don't want all that, all that stuff. Where's the forgiveness coming from in our modern day world? It's, what did Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them. Who does that in our day when they're wronged right now? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. No, if somebody wrongs us, we cancel them. They're done. We're out. No forgiveness. We don't do forgiveness. The Apostle Paul tells us this. It's not just Jesus and what he does for us. It's what Jesus expects of us. It's what the New Testament expects of Christians. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You just don't hear that spoken today in our modern day world of identity politics. I read once that Adolf Hitler 
he was embarrassed about the Christian heritage that was in Germany. He wanted to get rid of it or change it so it didn't even resemble Christianity. And here's what he said about it. He said, it's been our misfortune to have the wrong religion. Why didn't we have the religion of the Japanese who regard sacrifice for the fatherland as the highest good? The Mohammedan religion, Islam, too, would have been much more compatible to us than Christianity. Why did it have to be Christianity in Germany with its meekness and its flabbiness? The tenderness of Christianity, that, that flabbiness, Hitler's words there, was an impediment to Hitler's vision of Germany. He wanted a, a brutal, merciless country, and he got it. But he had to jettison Christianity in order to get it. And, and others who have embraced Christianity have tried to bleed love and mercy out of it and, and try, to, try to advance it by great violence. And... But the God of Christianity is a forgiving God. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Christianity is a, Christ, is, is a religion of forgiveness. You know, when Sonia and I, whenever we do premarital counseling, which we've done a lot of over the years, we spend a lot of time talking about forgiveness. Does that surprise anybody whenever we do premarital counseling? And, you know, we, we try to cover everything. We do about five or six sessions of premarital counseling. We try to cover everything. We cover everything, okay? We cover roles in marriage. We cover finances. We cover sex. We cover in-laws. We spend a lot of time on in-laws, too, because that's problematic in a lot of marriages. And if you said, okay, Pastor, only five sessions, that's a lot. You know, can you distill that down into, like, one central principle? What is the most important principle for marriage? I'll tell you what it is. Y'all want to know what it is? Repent and forgive. If I had three words to help you have a better marriage, Repent and forgive. Repent and forgive. Do that a million times for 50 years. And chances are you'll have a good marriage. And you know where I draw that from? I don't draw that from the culture. I don't draw that from the world. I don't draw that from, you know, the animal kingdom. There's no forgiveness in the animal kingdom. I draw that from the scriptures, from what Christ has done for us, for what God, God has forgiven us much, we forgive one another in light of that, right? I heard this said once, and here's another good principle for marriage. Bitterness. Isn't bitterness a temptation? Isn't it now? Bitterness is like swallowing poison and thinking it's going to hurt the other person. Bitterness is like swallowing poison and thinking it's going to hurt the person that you're bitter towards. It doesn't work. You have to forgive. Let me just give some other scriptural support for this. Do you remember that moment when Jesus came up, Peter came up to Jesus, and he asked him, how many, how many times should I forgive my brother? You all remember this? And, and Peter even gave Jesus a suggestion. Peter was giving Jesus suggestions a lot. So, and he gave him one here. It's like, how about seven times? Yeah, seven times, seven, that's a lot. You know, and, and the rabbis, in fairness to Peter, the rabbis in Jesus' day, three, four times, that'd be like max. You don't forgive somebody more than that. 
So Peter was like on the high end of that. Seven times, Jesus, huh? Huh? Pat me on the back. That's pretty good, huh? Seven? And I, I can, I can I try to imagine myself sometimes in Jesus' circle when he says these things. I can just imagine audible gasps as Jesus said what he said to Peter. I can imagine Peter, his jaw just hit the floor. Jesus said, not seven. With 70 times seven, Peter. In other words, forgiveness is a way of life. It's how you show love to another person. You have been forgiven much, you forgive others much. And then Jesus tells this parable. You know, parables sometimes it just hit the nail right on the head. Jesus talks about this king who forgives a servant. The servant owed him an incalculable debt. Just millions, millions, billions of dollars even. It's, it's extraordinary how much money he owes. And the king, who could have put him in debtor's prison, could have sentenced him for life, says, I forgive you this debt, servant. And then what does that servant do? Y'all know the parable, don't you? The servant goes out and starts shaking down every person he knows who owes him a little penance of money. Give me that money! And then when the king finds out about it, I forgave you all of this and you're going around, you're not forgiving anybody, you're putting people in prison. When the king found out about it, he threw him in debtor's prison until his debts were paid. And Jesus sums that up and he says this, he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That should terrify you, Harvest Decatur, if you're living a life of unforgiveness. You know what the number one way I think that we as Christians can be more loving one to another? Forgive. Forgive one another. Forgive much because you have been forgiven much. Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, woo, neither will your Father forgive you your trespass. Dare to be different, Harvest Decatur. Dare to be loving. Dare to be forgiving. I'll close with this. We're going to take communion in just a few moments. But before we do that, let's just turn our hearts to the Lord right now. And let me ask and answer this question for you. What was the truest example of love ever shown in our world? Do you know? I've alluded to it already. What is the truest and noblest example of love ever displayed in this world? You know, I don't want to make the mistake of saying that outside of the Christian church, outside of the Christian worldview, religion, that, that no one ever shows love to one another. I don't think that's true. There's enough common grace elements in our world that you see love. Even in Hollywood sometimes, there's a good movie that comes out every once in a while where these things are really exemplified and shown and, and good. There's enough, and I think that's a reflection of the Imago Dei that we are made in, that, that God-likeness spills out every now and again. But here's the thing, and I know you know this, our world is broken. And our hearts are twisted by sin. And so we need to go to the real source of real love in our world the greatest source, the perfect demonstration of selfless sacrifice, 
put on display before the watching world. Where was that? Where did that take place? I'll tell you where it took place. It took place at a place called the Skull. It took place at Golgotha. It happened on a Roman cross, these two chunks of wood that were hammered together, this, this way of execution and humiliation. The, the Romans, the, their best means of humiliating and torturing a person by hammering them to two chunks of wood and letting them suffocate on a cross. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, went to that Christ and he died a sacrificial death so that we might have forgiveness, so that we could be loved and forgiven by God. Do you know that love? Have you experienced that love? Maybe if you some this morning, maybe some of you watching right now, you, you don't know that. You don't get that. You can have your sins forgiven right now by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You can experience love like you've never experienced it in this world. And once you experience that love, once you get that, if you get that, what God did for you, what Jesus did for you at Golgotha, how can you not show love to another person? And what's amazing, even in the scriptures, even in Jesus' own words, John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. What? That's, that's crazy. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus giving of himself like that, Jesus says, you do like me. And the way that I loved you, you now show other people love like that. I'm not there yet, Harvest Decatur. I'll never be there. But I aspire to that for my entire life, to be more and more like Jesus, more and more loving every day, more self-sacrificial, more forgiving, more kind, more patient, more selfless instead of selfish. I dare you to be like that, Harvest Decatur. I dare you to be loving like Jesus loved us. Let's bow in a word of prayer, then we can take communion together. God, help us right now. I pray, help us with the practical side of this. Bring to mind, even right now, those people that we have failed to love well, Lord. Bring to mind that coworker at work that gets on our last nerve. Bring to mind that neighbor who's living a self-indulgent, sinful lifestyle. Bring to mind that child, that parent, that grandparent that we fail to love as we should. And help us, Lord. God, I pray in faith that you would make Harvest Decatur, this church, a demonstrably loving church in our community. 
May they know that we are Christians by our love. I pray, Lord. And Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for others in this room that we will grow increasingly loving every day and that we will be more loving at the end of 2021 than we are right now, this day. Do that work, Jesus. You're the only one who can. Do that work, Holy Spirit, inside of us. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.